Community Podcast, Governance Uncovered, Local Politics and Development, supported by the Swedish Research Council. This month, we talk to Kevin Prine, who serves as the President and Chief Executive Officer of Outreach International. Outreach International is an organization that facilitates community-led development around the world. Kevin tells us about the gains of working through participatory human development. He explains the struggles they meet in the field and lets us in on his thoughts on how to reach the greatest results. You can find more information about Kevin in the description below. As always, this podcast is hosted by GLD director Ellen Lust. We hope you enjoyed the show. So thank you, Kevin, for joining us today. I'm really, really glad to have you here um, to describe a little bit of the work that's done by Outreach International. It's, um, I think, an interesting project and a great approach. So maybe you could start by just describing a little bit of the work you do. Thank you for the invitation, Ellen. Happy to be here with you. Yes, so I've been a donor to Outreach International for just under 30 years. And the reason it, it, it has always been attractive to me is because of the the foundational work of empowerment. And so what we do is we try to create self-sustainable villages in about a five-year time frame. And the way we do that uh, is that we think about it from a point of process, not end result. And so if you can help people feel that they can make progress in terms of their own economic circumstances, it doesn't matter what kinds of things hit them later because they'll be far more better off by thinking that they can and and having an authentic belief in it, frankly, that they are able to take care of their own problems and not rely on outsiders coming in to save them. And, and so you're working on, just in terms of placing this, you're working in about 10 different countries, is that correct? That's correct. 10 different countries on four continents we're in about 170 plus locations. Okay, and when we think about locations, I mean, I think that what probably goes through most people's minds, in the, and you said four continents, it's ranging from basically India and Asia to Sub-Saharan Africa, Central America, South America. That's been one of the interesting philosophical challenges that we've tried to discover about ourselves. Of course, we have limited resources like everybody else. And so it's really about how do you create uh, the greatest good in the world based on your limited resources. And so you can make the argument that, well, if you just went into one country, you could really understand the country at a far deeper level and maybe do better good by limiting the geographic footprint that you're in. And, and I think for a lot of organizations that, that might be a, a strong case to make. For us, because we are really driven by the locals what we're trying to also do, in addition to just our primary work, is also discover as much as possible about participatory development and how to do that in the best possible way. And so for us, it makes sense to go as wide as possible in terms of cultural, uh, geographic, and across many spectrums, trying to discover what the best practices are. And these are best practices for things like helping with water and education and sense of organizational development and across the various sort of sectors as well, right? Yeah, exactly right. We we do things all across the spectrums in terms of trying to get people to uh, pull themselves out of extreme poverty. So we'll fund 
all kinds of different clean water initiatives because it's very dependent on the uh, the type of local situation that they're in. Sometimes it makes more sense to connect the local utilities and use our uh, funds to uh, organize folks so that they can access government resources. Other times it just makes sense to drill uh, deep water wells, and sometimes it just makes sense to rehab existing shallow wells. So it's it's very dependent on a local situation. And again, that's not really us going in and making the decision. Now, we certainly provide lots of systems and wisdom in the background because a lot of times people don't even know what they don't know. But it's driven by the the local, if you want to say, indigenous knowledge far more than it is than it's driven by Outreach International. And you'd mentioned the lessons that can be learned by working in a lot of different contexts. Can you give us a sense of, you know, in any one of these sectors, but just how we might think about contextual factors and why, for example, digging deep wells might work in one place and connecting to government services might in another, or how you might think about even sort of mobilizing participation in different areas differently? Sure. You know, it comes down to not just the physical things that you and I might be able to view. So, for example, working above 12,000 feet with indigenous populations in Bolivia obviously looks very different from working in the plains in Malawi. Mm -hmm. Those are those are super obvious differences. And of course, you and I could easily look at things like the governmental context and rule of law and things like that. But it goes so much deeper than that. So here's here's an example. Uh, we started working in Cambodia about two and a half years ago. Beautiful country, amazing people, uh, one of my favorite places to visit. But we also didn't completely understand, and we knew this, we didn't completely understand the context of culture and the things that that country has suffered through, especially in the in the 70s. We didn't know how that would interact with our particular methodology of empowerment and trying to better understand uh, the difficulties that a civil war, a recent civil war and genocide could have on our work. And here's one of the interesting ways that that played out. We use the word empowerment quite often in our work in other countries. And when we started working there, the way the word was translating was the same word that adults would use during the Pol Pot regime uh, when they would give a forced child soldier a gun and say, now you're empowered. Wow. And so there was, there was lots of baggage that came along with that word. And if we had come in as outsiders and tried to force our particular methodology and vocabulary obviously that would have not played out very well. That's interesting. Yeah. And you, when you would say outsiders, so obviously you and I are outsiders to, to most of the context in which we're working. But I know that one of the things that you do and which I, I like very much is the way in which you really are partnering with locals, for lack of a better way to put it, in sort of running the program. So can you give us a sense if, if I were working with you on the ground, what would I be doing in a village or a small community? Yeah, absolutely. So the the, the real I, I don't feel like I do much hard work, frankly. I mean, I, I do I do work a lot of hours and I do a lot of things, but the real heroes the in, in my mind are the folks who are out there. We have eighty nine 
full-time employees who were raised in the area where they work, they typically are not working in the villages where they have very strong connections, at least not initially. But they do tend to recognize, obviously, the language, the culture, how to do uh, the very first step in our process, which is integration. Mm -hmm. So they live in the communities where they're working. And again, this is not where they grew up. And so they, they move, they physically move to a village. And these are generally college educated folks who are then going back and living in communities and uh, they'll live there for three or four days out of the week. And then they'll go back and live with their families in their primary offices for one to three days a week. And uh, that's it's a key part of the integration because even they are outsiders. So let me tell you what people usually think of these folks because they're not coming in like typical NGO workers with shirts that are proudly displaying some westernized words on the front or the back or, you know, et cetera, et cetera, logos. They're coming in looking very similar to the folks who live in that community. Now, people know that there's something different about them because, of course, again, they're an outsider. They're obviously a little more educated. They're probably dressing a little nicer. They're able to afford a, you know, a cell phone and at least some type of minimal transportation. So they're definitely still an outsider, but, but they do look like me. So the first places I, that the villages typically go in terms of their assumption are if they're a female, they're often thought of as they're probably a prostitute. If they're a male, they're probably connected to some underlying government conspiracy or local crime network. And so here we have college-educated NGO workers, and they're asked to go and integrate into a community, a village, where those folks think the very worst of them. And within six months, what they're doing is they're integrating so well into that community that they then start calling them either brother or sister in the most authentic and best way possible. So it really is quite extraordinary what these folks are doing. Do they get to acknowledge that they're with Outreach International when they go into the villages, or how does that work? Because I can almost imagine it being quite dangerous if I was a woman and being thought of as a prostitute in the in the village I'm working in. Yes, absolutely. One of the things that we do is we uh, set up locally registered, locally organized NGOs so that Outreach International itself doesn't have to have its name on things. And it's not like we're trying to be secretive. It's more of to avoid the hassle that sometimes comes with being an international organization and working in a, in a different country. So instead, we create these partnerships where we become their primary and, and by far largest funder, uh, and they incorporate all of our systems of accountability, monitoring, and evaluation in each of these field offices. And what we're really doing is we're trying to create localized systems of locally organized NGOs that then actually spread out almost in a viral fashion, and they create locally organized NGOs in these villages because even when they go into a village, what their primary purpose is is to create local networks of power and so that these uh, villages can then in like, okay, we're a committee – 
for establishing clean water. We're a committee for establishing clean sanitation. We're, in a, we're a committee that's establishing a new school. All those types of things um, are being done on almost a viral level. And when those committees, I'm using that term kind of. <laughs> I, was, I was thinking uh, about works. that. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be different in every location, of course. But when uh, when they're doing that, really what they're trying to do is they're duplicating, well, frankly, they're duplicating at the highest level, Outreach International here in the United States, but then they're duplicating their home office in each one of those countries, and then they're duplicating those same things in those villages. And here's the best part. What ends up happening is then they start working with villages around them. Usually, at least two villages start to duplicate the exact same thing that we're doing in the village where we're working in after we've been there for roughly two years. And that's entirely and so, independently of anything you're doing. Well, so it used to be completely independently and, and almost just uh, as a point of serendipity. Now we're being much more intentional about how we do that, and we're measuring those results and even incentivizing that a little bit because we think that we could, if we get even somewhat comparable results, we we might be able to do it at one-third the cost. So plus it's just a super interesting way of establishing these islands of stability in these places that often experience conflict or weather-related events or, uh, you know, just all the causes that go into making a place experience economic and human misery, these they, they become these islands of stability. And it's it's just really interesting to see that happen. So just to be clear then, I mean, when you're saying that within about two years, you start to see other villages in the areas picking up some of the same practices, that was done in, initially by, you know, kind of modeling that they, they looked and said, okay, well, if they can do it, we can do it. Or what was the process like? Yeah. So it, of course, we're all aware probably of social modeling and so and peer influence. And so mm-hmm. when when I see someone doing something, but it reminds me of me, it it just incentivizes me or it gives me confidence that maybe I could start doing the exact same thing. And typically what would happen is, yes, there was an observance of, of things happening in these other villages, but if it was only the observance, people start making up stories. They, they Mm -hmm. would start going, well, they have a connection to some local government person that I don't have, or, you know, you start rationalizing in the absence of information. And what actually would, would occur is, you know, these villages have connections to each other, especially via marriage and relatives. And so if I'm in a community and we're starting to make progress on, and we're, and we feel like we're doing it largely on our, not on our own, but but largely we're responsible for that progress. And my grandchildren live in the village four miles away. Well, of course, I'm going to go over and I'm going to start trying to do the same thing over there. And I'm going to start doing the same type of processes that have been successful in my village. It may not be quite as formalized as what, of course, we're doing it. You know, it's the further away you get from the initial ripple that we're creating probably it, it's a it has a slightly different look to it but that's why we're trying to do a lot more investigation in that area to try to figure out if we can create those ripples and maybe those ripples even join together to be, become waves that's interesting that's really interesting when we look at it i mean the kinds of places you go into how do you choose where you're going 
It's a super good question. I only say it's a super good question because that was one of the very first questions that I asked the board when I was interviewing to become the president uh, eight and a half years ago. And the answer wasn't super strong at that point. The primary reason was because at that point in the organization's history, we had not uh, it created or established the the resources to be able to measure ourselves effectively. And so we've really just spent a lot of time over the last eight years trying to do exactly that. Now, we did have at the time pretty clear variables for what we should be looking at in terms of a region. So once we were already established in a location, we could look at various, we call them field program locations, or just you could just think of it as villages, and we could uh, apply some of these variables and try to determine, okay, that that place probably makes sense for us based on those variables. So for example, if there was too uh, much movement by folks, so for example, if everyone was uh, was a day laborer and they had to travel significantly during different seasons and be away from the village, that doesn't work great for our process. If there's too much human movement, it's difficult to get uh, these committees that I mentioned off the ground because they just can't get enough, quite enough traction. So if if people are too transient, it's hard for us to get traction. Another thing that we noticed is if there's already been a lot of NGO work in the area, our process doesn't work quite so well because there are expectations that any NGO worker that's coming in is going to give us something. And we just simply don't, our workers that are in those villages, if they're giving them anything, it is in such a a, a kind of a backdoor way of, because we do, so Outreach International also funds a lot of projects, but we never want our workers that are in those villages to be tied to those projects because it completely changes the power dynamic. And a friend, frankly, it's not inauthentic, they have to get those folks to the point that they are the ones who are making the proposal to Outreach International. So the funding really still is not going through the worker themselves because it still is coming from the village. But we just want to always have them avoid that power dynamic of, I have access to resources. You should treat me a little differently because of that. Yeah, and so when we've encountered villages or even countries where there's been too much outside money flowing in, our process doesn't seem to work so well. So that's at the micro level, but there's also a macro level that we discovered fairly early on. So I, I basically just started doing a little bit of, uh, I, I suppose it'd just be very basic statistical work, trying to determine, well, where are we doing our best work compared to our to our places where we're we're not just seeming to make as much traction as we might in some of these other places. Surely it can't be just based on the quality of the team or or exact or leadership or whatever. And what we found was we have this sweet spot of countries that are basically think of it uh, maybe the the Legadoom Prosperity Index that comes out on an annual basis. We, our best work typically is not done in the countries that are at the bottom of that list. And it, it, it makes me sad that we can't do a better job in some of the places that have the worst human suffering. But we just don't do well in places, or certainly we don't do as well in places 
that are experiencing high degrees of conflict. So, for example, we would probably not do well in Afghanistan, mm -hmm. uh, but we do incredibly well in places like Philippines, India, Cambodia, Paul, you know, the places where we're currently at, that really is, is what exists as our sweet spot. Do you have a sense of why that's the case? Well, maybe because I can, let's analyze it from, a, from the opposite perspective. Uh, we used to have field pro program locations here in the United States on the uh, southern border where we were working with immigrant populations, first generation or individuals who are moving back and forth across the border. And frankly, we just uh, we weren't getting the same type of metrics that we were getting in other locations. And there were lots of different factors that were playing into that. But one of the reasons was there was too strong of a safety net to mm. uh, effectively create the, the type of, I don't know what, how to say it, responsibility for my own destiny kind of thing. I mean, I'm not going to die, at least not immediately, from lack of clean water generally in the United States. I'm certainly going, I'm, I'm going to die early from other problems of poverty in the United States, but it's not quite so immediate. You know, I'll generally have enough food to eat generally. Um, I'll generally have the things that will keep me alive, uh, even when I'm at the, the bottom of the ladder. I, again, I'll die early from other things, but I probably won't die in the next couple of weeks. But that's not the case in a lot of the places that we work. I mean, there really is a real threat from lack of health care, lack of clean water, lack of sanitation, those types of things. It's a very different version of poverty outside the United States. And so I closed those programs down about three years into my presidency because we just weren't getting the same type of uh, transformation in the places where we work. So there's sort of the lack of real need, in a sense, to invest in it. Yeah, at least at the time. And I wouldn't even say that that's going to be a permanent situation for outreach. There may be new models that we can employ as we continue to, to fine-tune and learn uh, some things. People have talked to me before about continuing to readdress immigrant populations and how we might be able to use what we've learned and some of our resources to be able to help those folks. Uh, also, Native American populations on reservations, et cetera. So there could be some other ways that maybe we'll be able to widen our net in terms of what we can do to make the world a better place. But at the moment, we're still at that point of really determining the best place, the best uses for our money. And we think we've found that right now. And now we're to the point that, that we can maybe investigate what a wider net looks for us. And what if we go on the opposite extreme? So you, the example you gave is of the U United States makes sense. But if we were thinking of Afghanistan or some of these sort of more conflictual cases, is it the same set of issues? Is it that there's local strongmen that hold things together? Or is it that people are too disempowered? Do you have any sense of why it doesn't work there? Yeah, it, it's very different depending on the place. In, in some locations, it might be for exactly the reason that you're saying so it's very difficult for us, as an example, in Haiti, we have 60 schools, 61 schools in Haiti. It's very difficult for us to do our traditional work in Haiti for a couple of different reasons. One, there has been so much aid that has flowed in mm. from NGOs, uh, especially after the earthquake, but even before the earthquake and from the U.S. government. Very difficult for us to do work 
There's also a high distrust, and I think it probably comes a little bit from exactly the same thing, a high distrust of outsiders. And it's not just outsiders if you look a little different. It's people who are outside your family or outside your village. Mm-hmm. So it's very difficult for us to uh, do that very first strip step of integration. In that case, uh, it's difficult because of the circumstances that are specific to Haiti. In other places like DR Congo, although that place has changed dramatically just even the last five or six years, in DR Congo, it was very difficult before for us because of the years and years of civil conflict that that country had been experiencing. And so in that particular case, there was times when we would make progress in a village and then uh, because of that progress, it would draw attention to local crime lords. And sure enough, they would then come in and uh, it just wasn't a good situation. Uh, I remember, gosh, how long ago was that? 20 years ago, working with my college students and I had a number of Ukrainians and this was just after the, the wall fell, just a few years after that. And we visited Ukraine and went to various places. And I thought, man, this is, would be such a fantastic place to invest right now, uh, especially on the coast, because there's so many beautiful places um, that you could put up a, a, a hotel. And I had access to money. So I, I started talking to my Ukrainian students And I said, you know, what if we partnered together? And they said, you know, right now would not be a great time to do that because if you look like you have any money, the local crime lords will come in and they'll threaten to take your family unless you fork over a large portion of your your earnings to them. And it it just blew my mind because, because of course, I had never experienced anything like that. And and I think, obviously, uh, countries change over time. So just like I mentioned, even in DR Congo, we've seen fairly significant changes uh, there in just the the last five to seven years. Of course, that's very regional in that large country, but but, uh, it's becoming one of our better places uh, in terms of performance. So you've mentioned a couple of challenges, right? The challenge of your officers integrating into the villages or, or into the communities, you know, the challenges of having people who are kind of in need enough to want to invest in the process that that you have, the challenges of these uh, criminal gangs or or warlords who can take over. Are there other challenges that you that you face that we haven't discussed? Probably hundreds. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm trying to categorize them into things that would make sense to talk about. Let's see. One of the so one of the very, very interesting things that has been super difficult and I think we're starting to look at this in a different way over the last couple of years. And it really is, how do you scale things as effectively as you can scale things if you are trying to do things from a purely economic standpoint? And so I come from an entrepreneurial business background. And for me, once you have figured out a way to I, I had to be so crass as to make to just say make money. Once you've figured out a model to make money, once I've figured out the next Amazon or the next, I mean, just name it, you can scale that so much easier than 
our ability to scale our current models, or at least our old models, because, so for example, even just, uh, so we start, uh, so maybe our revenues are doing well at Outreach International, and now what we want to do is we want to create, you know, more and more of these places where we're doing this transformational work. Well, we need to hire people, and then we need to train them for several months, making sure that they have the capabilities of going into a village and getting that village to, to transform, because it's a very different model. And then it takes us five years to get that place to the point that they are self-sufficient. Well, oh my gosh, that's a long time frame. Uh, as compared to if I come up with the next way, a water filtration device or LED lights or whatever, I can just ramp that up in a manufacturing facility and I can start selling those things. So one of the things that we've been trying to figure out is, is there is there something that's comparable that, that runs alongside Outreach International that takes the things that we've learned in terms of people finding their own way out of extreme poverty, but look at it from an even stronger business perspective. Like, is there something that's standing in the way and one of the things that I'm kind of excited about that we're doing right right now is we're starting to determine new ways of doing uh, micro mortgages and safe housing that also incorporates lots and lots of the solutions into an existing housing structure. So what makes a house safe, especially in places where we work that might be prone to earthquakes or typhoons, hurricanes, et cetera? So what makes that house safe? What makes it somewhat comfortable? And what are the things that will take us a long way in terms of eliminating poverty? Well, basically that's bed nets, that's some type of water filtration device or chlorinated water, that's some type of clean sanitation, sometimes even using um, composting latrines, mm -hmm. you know, it, that's LED lights. It's, it's things that, I mean, there's all kinds of off the shelf uh, solutions to that. Well, well, what's the real problem then? I mean, we, we, we already have solutions to most of the world's problems that we're facing, at, at least in terms of extreme poverty. Why are we not able to deploy those in a faster way? And for me, I think uh, this is over, way oversimplifying the problem. But for me, it is because they have lack of access to appropriately priced capital. Mm -hmm. Well, that just was a bunch of words that I just used that just <laughs> probably just sound like a bunch of finance garbage. But it really is, I mean, of course you have problems with land ownership and titling and things like that too. But part of it is because the places where we work, especially after we've been there for two or three years, they have no access to be able to purchase a house. So they end up just buying block by block, and maybe they have some land that they have. Their usual price of capital for trying to own that type of a solution would be about 120 to 240% per year. Mm -hmm. Well, they can't afford it. Well, at the same time, I have lots and lots of connections to folks here in the United States who would love to earn eight to 10% on a social investment that is creating a better world and giving them a decent return on their money. Mm -hmm. And if I can just match those two things up so that we're doing micro loan lending uh, for mortgages 
for these safe housing, all of a sudden we can scale in a single solution the things that these folks need and we're doing it not through just a transfer of uh, of wealth we're doing it because we're actually creating wealth on both ends and that's kind of exciting that's interesting it also strikes me that that's you know going back to the point you'd made earlier about the different contexts in which things can work right um, that that works in a particular set of circumstances Right. Where it's in a sense, OK to build a good house and it's OK to sort of move up and doesn't start to draw negative attention. So it seems to me like there's a there's two sides to it. One is what kinds of processes can be put in place. And then the second part of it is in what places can they be put? Yeah, you're exactly right. And so that's one of the things that Outreach International brings to the equation and where we where we started in this conversation in, a, in the description is. We want to be as wide and cross-cultural as possible to be able to investigate some of these possibilities. So how it might look in one place could be very different in terms of how it looks in another place. So there might be a lot more governmental support, and there might even be very long-term land leasing options in some places. And in other places, uh, the communities um, have to self-organize. And see, here's one of the interesting things that always surprised me as well. Human beings are so surprisingly innovative and uh, and have abilities far beyond what I sometimes think, you know, based on my first impressions. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, for, for ugh, decades, people have been talking about the problem of land ownership and that Hernando de Soto winning the, the Nobel Prize for his work on just uh, the land titling, uh, you know, that's, a, that's an old problem. Well, maybe one of the reasons it's an old problem is because of the lack of both formerly technology uh, being put in place and, again, not having access to appropriately priced capital. You know, maybe I don't even care about land titling if I don't have the ability to get it to get a mortgage at a decent rate, well, yeah, I don't care. I have to rent my entire life, and that's the way it has always been, and that's the way it's always going to be. But if all of a sudden I have access to a mortgage that allows me to purchase a home, and I can do it at, say, 11%, and now I can get into an affordable home, all of a sudden me and all my neighbors are going to be demanding good governmental land titling options, and we never even thought about them before. And I love that kind of, hopefully, uh, to use the the old phrase of that arc bending towards justice, I think it also bends toward rationality. And so I think that arc of history, I'm fairly optimistic uh, about what human history, even in the midst of all of our current challenges with the virus and uh, with the economic upheaval, I'm actually, I'm, I'm pretty optimistic about what's going to happen with the human race in the long term, if we can just survive long enough. You know, I'm going to stop us there because I think that's a fabulous note to end on. And I just want to thank you so much for joining us. It's, it's been great. Thank you. Mm-hmm. 